Welcome to HR Futures Podcast, uh, brought to you by Expedite HR, the people behind Circal and Working Futures. The series is also supported by Zealous, the UK's largest HR and benefits provider. With me today is Jackie Simmons, who is the Chief People Officer at Vion. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Kevin. Um, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about Vion, about your role, what the organisation does, because I'm not sure many people know it, and how big it is and stuff. Okay, yeah, no, thanks, uh, Kevin. Yeah, uh, Vion is um, the the name of the uh, company, but actually operates under a whole number of different brands. Um, we've got 50,000 employees Um but they are in markets uh, that are outside of Europe. So our biggest market is in Russia. We've got Beeline Russia that has about 30,000 employees and turns over about $5 billion. And the other markets are um, in other parts of Eurasia, ranging from Kazakhstan to Ukraine, but also Pakistan, Algeria, Bangladesh, so a number of frontier markets. And what we do is we provide telecommunications uh, services and digital services. So it's the fifth largest telecommunications company in the world, um, but it also provides a number of digital services such as um, digital financial services. And we have a really big business in Pakistan called Jazz Cash, um, which uh, is uh, a big player on digital financial services in that market. Okay. And how long have you been there? I've been there two years. Uh, okay. And before that, you was at EasyJet. Yeah. And prior to that, TUI for two. quite a long time. That's so, right, yeah. So you've been in HR quite a while then? 30 years. <laughs> 31 so, years, actually. 31 years. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how you got into it in the first place. I'm always interested because, you know, we've done lots of interviews with people and interested if people sort of had an epiphany at university, you know, must be an HR, whether they just sort of stumbled into it along the way. So tell us about how you became an HR practitioner. Okay. And um, I actually had two things that happened to me which were quite unrelated. Um, but I uh, used to spend a lot of time in the library when I was about 16 because I come from a really big family and the library was the only place that I could get some peace and quiet. And I came across a book um, around people in organisations. So I found this really, really interesting book. Um, and at the time, I was doing a one-year course in a college in London, um, hadn't gone to university at that time. And then I happened to get a job as a PA uh, to an HR manager, which was a personnel manager, and then ended up doing quite a lot of work on graduate recruitment. Um, and so I kind of fell into HR, but those, but, but, but the two kind of went together. So I didn't go back to, to university till I was 21. And, and then when I graduated, um, having evaluated a whole number of other, other options, I decided that I'd still prefer to work in HR. So that's what happened. Okay. Uh, going, to, going to university at 21, that must have been quite interesting. Yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. Because you were a bit older and a little bit more grown up yeah. and you'd been to work and stuff, whereas yeah. most undergraduates haven't got a clue, have they? Yeah, well, I actually had... Um, I'd done my A-levels at evening classes while I worked full-time and then I went to live in France for two years. So I'd been out of school, full-time school, for like five years. So it was yeah, a bit yeah, of a yeah. shock having to go back and study. Um, but actually, I ended up having a great time and... Um, how it all worked I was only a couple of years older than people yeah. but it felt like I was a lot older when I first went back I always think that university to some extent would be so much more valuable if you'd done a bit of time at work because I think you'd appreciate it you know my son he's now been at work I don't know a couple of years I can remember him saying 
you know, he went from 12-hour contact time a week to 12-hour days, you know, and all of a sudden he went, oh, that university was quite good, but didn't quite appreciate it yeah. at the time, whereas if you've worked, he thought... Anyhow, um, so uh, let's tell us a bit about the different sectors you've worked in. So we've mentioned two. You've mentioned EasyJet and Veal. Uh, I think you even worked in recruitment early. Yeah, in career, my first job, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me a bit about the, what you see the differences in terms of HR within those different organisations and different environments. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, there's a there's a level of similarity in HR in all of those organisations to some degree. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, services that you've got to provide to your business. Um, and some of those services, particularly in the travel industry, are pretty critical because if you don't have your reps in place or your cabin crew in place, you, you don't have a business. So mm. those operational services are really, really critical to make them make sure that they run in a well-oiled way yeah. and, and, they're, and they're very well done. Um, I think the different industries, although tour operating, you know, had a number of airlines, it's... Uh, you know, very customer focused, um, you know, really, really uh, focused on the experience that our customers have. I think the airline um, also very focused on that, but a highly regulated industries, heavily mm. unionized. Um, and so from an HR perspective, there's slightly different dynamics there. Um, telecommunications is not that dissimilar to, to some degree, highly regulated. Yeah, and yeah. I think the difference is, in this business is the markets that we operate in and the access to yeah. kind of uh, the capabilities that you need. Yeah, as I was about to say, um, yeah, most probably different view of talent, most probably yeah. more technology, I suspect. Yeah, in, very, in very tech, tech people. Um, although I have to say that when I was at TUI and uh, EasyJet, you know, you still have an underlying tech piece that is yeah. less visible because, you know, of what the businesses do. But, you know, I was, um, you know, working at TUI during a period of great transformation from offline to online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was huge investment in technology, but a huge investment in the way that we would interact with our customers. And at EasyJet, which is a totally digital uh, business, um, was also the yeah. same. Um, I think the telecommunications industry actually is slightly behind some other industries in terms of its transformation, but heavy tech focus um, mm. in terms of, um, you know, having to recruit software engineers, big data analysts, uh, etc. is a much heavier focus on that, whereas previous companies tended to outsource some of that work. Okay. Um I suppose also thinking about your career to date, tell us a little bit about what you think is the thing you're proudest of, the thing that, you know, when you look back at your different time and different in these organisations where you think you've made the biggest impact and why? There's a couple of examples, I suppose. When I first, uh, when I had my first number one role, which is a much smaller company, I worked for um, Hearst Magazines in the UK yeah. um, and I was made head of HR with very little experience, uh, if I'm honest. When I look back now, I'd only really been in HR for about four years. Um, so I was made head of HR. And, um, you know, I, I, I remember looking back at that job and being thinking that we were quite ahead of our time. So did loads of work on um, flexible working for women, um, working families, maternity leave. Okay. And this was in the early 90s. Um, you know, say from yeah mid nineties actually. Um, so that was a time when that was actually quite progressive, and we won quite a number of awards for being family friendly. And this is way 
before, before it, it was became, trendy yeah. and, and, you know, popular to sort of do mm. so. Um, maybe not so much trendy, but very popular. But partly because it was a driven by 85% female, female working in women's magazines, 85% female population. So that was, I felt quite proud of how I left that organisation um, a lot more professional, a lot more structured and a lot better place for... Uh, how long was you work there? In Six years. Nice. Um, so that was... Uh, I felt quite proud of that. Um, I always feel proud of my time at First Choice in TUI because, you know, over a 15-year journey, you see a, a relatively small company at the yeah. bottom of the two, FTSE 250 go into the top half of the FTSE um, and grow up. Uh, through that time as well as having gone through an unbelievable transformation but during that time I was really proud of the merger you know merged with uh, Thompson and First Choice and I was the HR person that led that and mergers are notoriously difficult to get right Um, but actually we really improved employee engagement during that time Um, didn't lose people um, that we didn't want to um, were able to retain quite a lot of talent but also make quite significant organizational change during that time Um, and actually I think it's great testimony that you know the we thought of ourselves as a new company rather than that person came from first choice or that person came from Thompson and we ended up doing really quite a good case study out of it because it did work so well but it was a really good example of HR working with business leads to make sure there was a smooth transition and this transition went over three years it wasn't you know a short thing because people think that when you do a merger that the companies do the same thing but actually what you realize is that every process every system every way of operating is actually really quite different Um, so I felt pretty proud of how that worked out and if you look back on it now what would you say are the two or three things that made it successful you know, so you've most probably been involved in other acquisitions and stuff since. Yeah. Uh, you must take some learning from that and go, well, we need to make sure we do, do, do these two or three things. Yeah, I think early on we did a lot of pre-preparation before the merger actually went through. So we knew it was at the competition uh, authorities for it yeah. to finalise. But we proactively got together with the opposite team under NDA um, and agreed how we would try to plan for the preparation of the merger. Um, and that included what sort of company did we want to be? Okay. So how would we, you know, who are our key stakeholders? Obviously, investors, customers, employees, etc. Um, and we had a very clear view about how we were going to approach that. So we did quite a bit of preparation we we did a lot of work on communicating with employees. So even yeah. though we knew that it was quite an uncertain time for people, we invested an awful lot of time in keeping people up to date and skilling our managers to lead yeah. through uncertainty. Um, and also we appointed someone uh, out of the business full time as an integration director for 12 months. Um, and I think those, I mean, there were other things, but those those things, I think, made the most difference, that we were really committed to making it work mm. and having a balanced approach to it. And, and one of the questions I've got is, is around HR and change and transformation. So, I mean, obviously, we've been talking about a merger is a big piece of transformational change. So do you think HR as a profession has got the skills to lead these types of programs? Clearly need to be involved because it involves people. What's your view on the HR profession managing and leading transformation? I personally think that they should be doing that. You know, I can't comment 
on a whole, but you know, the people I meet are pretty capable that, you know, and able to do that. And as a professional myself, I've always been involved since I think since 2004, I don't know if I, you know, I've ever told you this, but I spent a year um, as a as part of a business improvement team where we started Good. to look at the operating model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so ever since then, I've always been involved in and in leading that transformation and change. Okay. Let's sort of move on then or do the other side of that question, really. So, you know, what, what when you look back, what's the thing where you go, mm, didn't go so well, bit of a failure, mistake, but you've learned from it. You know, I mean, when you don't go through a career and not make mistakes or things go wrong because it's just the way life is. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of it's about how you respond to it. So tell us a bit about something that you did that didn't quite go as well as you hoped but you got some learning from it. You know, you've, you've learned something about yourself or organisations. Yeah. yeah, I think in the early stages of um, setting up HR shared services, this would have been also in around 2005, um, I, I did one big piece of outsourcing to India. Okay. And I it was just really not very good at all. And I think the lessons we learned from that was that you know, trying to run faster than an organisation is ready for is doesn't mm. always kind of leave you in a good place and that you can't outsource something that is very, very complex and, um, you know, it, you know, and it's not a slick yeah. process. So, you know, we had at that time, you know, lots of different payrolls, lots of different oh, terms God. of conditions. Yeah. And then try and then an airline is a very complex payroll anyway. Yeah. Um, and then trying to outsource that to India um, was just a really challenging piece of work. So and do, we took it back. So, And do you think that the learning was outsourcing can work, but you need to do a lot more prep, you know, a bit like with your thing, or I'm not quite sure whether outsourcing works per se... So what's the what have you taken away from? There was a couple of things. I think some of that you can't outsource something that's not working. Yeah, it's uh, got you to know, be. got to be working pretty well. And if it isn't, you've got to really spend a lot of time making sure that it works effectively. I think you've got to see the outsourcing team as part of your team. It's not you know it's not their problem. It's no. a it's a joint ownership. So I think that's quite a key a key thing. Um, and the second thing is um, you know another thing is that. Um, You've got to be really sure it's worth it because whenever you outsource, it will be painful. Uh, that the prize is big enough. Yeah, yeah. And if the prize isn't big enough, the pressure just mounts to yeah. bring it back, doesn't yeah. it? Okay. Um, I'm really interested in uh, this question because, again, I think it. I think a lot of people that listen to these podcasts are people sort of in their mid careers that perhaps might may want to be an HR director at some point in the future, and they're looking for hints and tips and stuff. So one of my um, questions is: How do you decide what to put in your HR plan and strategy, and what to jettison? You know, so thousands of things we can do, can't do it all. We're going to do these things, and we're not going to do those. So how do you make the trade-off between what's in the strategy and plan and what isn't? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think you have to look at, firstly, what is your business strategy? So what is the organisation trying to achieve is is the main thing. Then you've also got to think about well, what's happening in your industry more generally. So what yeah. change in, in competition is going on? 
Um, then you've got to think about well, what's also happening in the world of work. Yeah. And I think those three factors, those three elements factor into looking at an overall HR strategy. Um, and I think once you've kind of done that, it helps you prioritise what are the factors that you know, might be short-term things you need to do, but what are the other things that you need to be thinking what, two, three to five years out? And I've always taken that approach, looking at those mm. four elements. And the fourth element is then, what are the current issues that you've got that you're trying yeah. to solve? And those four things create, I think, a, a shopping list of things that can be done. And then you have to prioritise them and engage with those, your CEOs and, and, the, and, the business, and the operators in your business to try and prioritise those I, things. I, I, yeah, again, the reason for asking the question is I think it's one of HR's weaknesses, really, because they often see HR functions that actually they do the work, they do the plan and the strategising and then try and do everything, you know, and, and that means you're always going to not have enough resource to deliver it effectively and you compromise and... And so, again, it's most probably the last bit. So you talked about the business strategy. You talked about looking at the industry, looking at the future world of work and look at your current issues. And I think that's absolutely right. I think people get that. But then actually making the trade-off is potentially the hardest bit. You know, is there any advice you can give for people about how to make those trade-offs? You know, they've done the work. They've got lots of ideas. They've got... Yeah. Let's do a new talent strategy. Let's do some leadership development. It goes on yeah. and on and on, yeah. doesn't it? I think um, you have to be kind of brutal about it because you don't. You do have finite resources and you don't have an unlimited budget. Uh, and I think you have to ask yourself the question: What adds is going to add the most value to your organisation? Um, and I always kind of also ask, you know a number of questions on a regular basis and some of those you never have the answer to so what skills and capabilities are you going to need to deliver your strategy what are the leadership capabilities that you've got and where are those gaps so mm. i think that you have a you have an, a way of kind of constantly prioritizing those i think my own experience in terms of the businesses that i've worked in particularly because i've worked in very low margin businesses is you don't have the luxury of doing things just because it's best practice. You only have the luxury of doing things that you can demonstrably show are going to make a big difference to your business. And that's not to say that you won't do things at best practice, but you know there are a number of things that you can push through because you know that they will make a big difference to your business. Okay. Um, what do you think HR's biggest failing is? And what's the opportunity for the HR profession in the next decade? Or do you think there's an opportunity? But first of all, what's our biggest failing as a profession? Yeah, see, I, I, I disagree with... I know that you and I have talked about this kind of offline because I think that HR comes in for an awful lot of criticism and yeah. sometimes that is unfair. Because I think the biggest failure, if there is a failure... It's that that leadership effectiveness has not significantly improved enough because I think it's our job as HR professionals to constantly challenge the capability and the quality of leadership that we have in our organisations. And quite often, I think my personal view is that HR will be criticised because they may be filling a gap or a void that leaders should be filling. Because actually the CEO and the leaders of an organization need to take ownership of their HR issues. And the voice of the chief people officer is that kind of conscience and helping them focus on the things that can 
um, you know, drive the organisation forward. Um, and also reminding them of maybe the capability issues that they've got or start, you know, helping them think through what they're trying to achieve uh, from a business or from their change and transformation plans. So I think that if I look back, um, you know, in every organisation I've been in, I still see the same issues around performance management, uh, you know, not having enough capability, um, and I think that we have to take some responsibility for that. Yeah, so it's an interesting one because it's a bit chicken and egg, really, isn't yeah. it? So the HR or chief people officer holds up the mirror and challenges around leadership itself, but also about the leadership of people in mm-hmm. particular. Um, and, and, and do you feel that, what, we back off, we don't follow through, we're not assertive enough or we don't influence enough? Because I think you're right, I'm not sure we've won the argument. And Because if we had won the argument, then we'd have better leadership and it would be easier to play the role of HR because the leadership team get it and they drive the agenda, don't they? And they keep calling on you as experts, help us with this, help us with that. Whereas sometimes it feels like we're pushing a big rock up a hill, doesn't it? Yeah, I I don't think there's any kind of one thing that you can point to. I think that the HR role has absolutely evolved over the last 10 years um, or even longer, to be honest with you. So I think and there are so many really great HR professionals that I come across and, you know, I know are completely committed to their organisations. I think that, you know, it it always has to be grounded in what is the business trying to achieve. And I think that... When you get really great HR, leaders really appreciate it because they see that they're working with them to achieve the same goals. Um, And I think where it goes wrong, it's where it might well be around transactional HR or which is still very important and and necessary to get right. Um, But, you know, there there is often sometimes a disconnect um, Okay, so uh, so so what should H? So when you've worked with leadership teams that get it and ones that perhaps don't, what's the difference? Because because you presumably played the same role, you yeah. challenged, asked the same questions. Is it that it's not listened to or not acted upon? Or I suppose I'm just trying to work out because I think one of the things that's interesting is I, I think to some extent you're right, Jackie. In that HR gets, you know, it's broad brush, you know, HR is one thing or another, and it's not, it's different in every organisation. And some organisations are very successful and have got great HR and others Mm. haven't. And I think it has to do with leadership. I think you're right. So I suppose what I'm trying to get to is what do you think, is it HR's role to create that environment? Or do you just abandon ship when you can't convince them that it is about the people agenda you got what I'm trying to get to yeah no I think HR can have a role in 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 um absolutely influencing that agenda um but I have to say also there are some people who simply don't get it yeah uh you know but I think in terms of what HR focuses on and in order to get attention you know the things that I've always I only ever focus on like four or five kind of key things and one of those is the capability and quality of leadership and the succession planning and the pipelining there. Mm. For me, that is my job. And sometimes I know people get irritated with me for going on about it, but I just don't stop going on about it. Um, Particularly if I think there's someone in a role that isn't, um, you know, operating at the level that you'd expect them to. 
Um, I think uh, another area of focus is always asking those questions around the skills and capabilities that they need in order to deliver their strategy to to succeed. Because again, so many times I see amazing strategies with no discussion whatsoever about what resources they need or where they're going to get them from. I think the whole engagement and culture piece is pretty critical for HR to always focus on. Um, And then the other thing, you know, which has become much more recent, I think, but, and I I don't quite like this term, but it's about how future ready is your organisation, how you're Mm. making it future fit. Um, And again, as you know, I've come from an organisation that was very disrupted, and, and so it, it was in my mm. DNA to constantly think about how should we be improving ourselves. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think you wait to a crisis to no, ensure that your organisation is efficient, working well, um, and that you've got the right structures in place. So HR's role, get the four areas, got to try and challenge it, hold the mirror up, influence what happens if you can't? What happens if they, you know, we've, you've you found an organisation, and I'm not sure if you have in your career, but many of us have, where they just don't get it. What do you do then in those circumstances? I think it, I think there's a couple of things really. Sometimes an organisation an organisation simply isn't ready to go to go, and and I, and I think that's another thing that I've learned is you can't go faster. As much as you push, you can't go faster than an organisation is ready to change. So yeah, I think you've got yeah, yeah. to ask yourself that question. Is it really ready to change now? Yeah. Or, you know, how long is it going to take? But in my experience, if you just keep chipping away, and keep mm. chipping away, you, get there, in the you get there in the end. I mean, you've got to ask yourself the question whether it's worth it. Um, but, you know, generally, something will happen in an organisation which will show that some of the things that you've addre- you know, you're trying to address will be yeah. necessary. But I think if you really, if they really didn't get it, then there's a personal choice. Cool. Okay. Uh, that's the end of the first half of this podcast. Join us in a couple of minutes where I'll be asking Jackie some further questions about HR, about her role, and a little bit about herself as well. So join us in a couple of minutes. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? or increase your agility and capacity. There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and manage services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. Welcome back to the second part of our HR Futures podcast with Jackie Simmons, who's the Chief People Officer for Vion PLC. So I enjoyed the first part of our conversation, Jackie. Um, What I'm really interested in is... Just starting to think a bit about um, the future. And you mentioned this earlier on about getting a business future ready. Um, and we know you can't pick up a magazine, 
anything to do with business for them not to be talking about robots are coming and AI and machine learning and algorithms and 3D printing and the internet of things. You know, there is a, you know, we're on the cusp of a significant change in the ability of technology to automate and potentially to add value. So I suppose the question for me is, what should HR be doing? In light of all this potential change, you know, the, you know that we're on the cusp of, what should, if you're an HR director or an HR team, what should you be thinking about? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think, again, it comes back to what is your organisation trying to achieve? What's happening in the outside world? And some of those things you've mentioned yeah. are really relevant. And asking those questions about, well, how is that going to impact us? Um, you know, if I take the example of big, big data or the transformations yeah. that organisations are going through, particularly in AI, you know, everyone's actually looking for similar skill sets yes. um, and it gets bucketed uh, sometimes into digital. But actually, if you break it down, there's lots, there's lots of different components to that. Um, and one of the things that we've done, which we've been piloting at the moment is a piece of work on strategic workforce planning. Interesting. And we've been talking to a couple of our CEOs and going through with them, you know, what's their strategy, um, breaking down each area of their business and customer operations, et cetera, et cetera. And then starting to ask those questions, what are those things, you know, what impact is the technology that's out there having on their business what skills do we need? What skills need to be different going forward? Where will we get those? Because in some of our markets, yeah. um, you know, we've got a brain drain. Um, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. we actually can't get the people. And secondly, how is it going to impact our customers? Yeah. So we've done, um, so that would be one example of something that we've done yeah. um, just to pilot that to then use in all of our businesses so that we can get a picture of where we need to focus and help them focus as well. Um, and actually, it's been really, really appreciated. It's one of those things now that we're rolling out. That we've got a queue of people wanting us to work with them on because okay. we're also linking it to our talent uh, oh, reviews okay. so that we can go through this with them, understand the skills that they need, um, and then feed that into the talent planning. So the talent planning isn't just about whether someone's a high potential or whether they're, you know, we've got successes because what we're realising through this work is that the people that are there now may not be the people that we need going forward. Mm. So ask the strategic questions, get involved in some kind of workforce planning, align that to your talent strategy. Okay. Um, I suppose one of the questions I've got around the whole sort of transformation driven by technology is I think HR's got a role to play in making sure it isn't just an automation strategy yeah. and we're going to save money, but actually thinking about it, which is how do we reinvest some of it? I mean, I'm not saying I think yeah. if you, you know, we can automate, you should automate. You know, if it's dull work, then let's get rid of it and get machines to do it. But that enables us the ability to think about where we can invest for customers so we can create more value and be more commercial. So I think the I think there's a role for HR um, in challenging and asking those questions. Otherwise, it just becomes, let's automate and save some money and yeah. drop yeah. to the bottom line. And I don't think it is. I mean, even where you do automate, you know, where you bring chatbots in, for example, and we've got a number of examples of that, 
you realise that you might need to redeploy those people and use them in a different way because actually you've still got customers yeah. that prefer to either to speak to people yeah, and yeah, yeah. you automate things that are quite simple and quite straightforward. But where they're complex, it doesn't always work like that. So I think that's all part of those questions that you asked in terms of understanding the impact of it. Yeah, okay, get that. Now, one of the questions I always ask everyone, because I think it's really important, which is a young person comes to you and says, you know, perhaps they've been, a, they've been to university or perhaps they haven't, but they've um, got a bit of work experience and they say, I'm thinking about having a career in HR. So what would you say to that individual um, about the opportunity and what advice would you give them? Yeah, okay. Firstly, I think HR is the best job in the organisation to have. So I think if, you, if people are going into it, then they're making a great choice because it's the one area where genuinely you get to understand every single part of how business operates. And, you know, you really can, you know, if you look at the whole organisation, understand every function. So I think that's, a you know, kind of one of the things I would say is learn very quickly around what everything do, everyone does I think the other thing I would advice I would give is um, if you're not numerate, do some form mm. of accountancy program early on because it really is important to understand how a business makes money and the um, yeah. you know and therefore when you're working on things you can understand the impact of that. Um, and then the last thing I would uh, advice I would give is to. You know, if you're doing a big change project, if you get the chance to be involved in that early on, I think that's really quite key because you will learn so much around how that can, what works, what doesn't work, how certain leaders cope with change and uncertainty. And I think as an HR professional, you have the opportunity to really think about the people aspects of change mm. and make a real difference to the success or failure of a key project so as a young person um i think if you you know, if you get get some of those exposures um early on then i think it can be really good for you okay so you're quite positive about hr what do you think we need to be doing about careers of hr people because what i mean by that is um I'm not sure we always get the brightest and the best in HR. And if you think about the challenges and the opportunities that we've talked about, I think we need to compete a little bit more aggressively to get great people into the function rather than sales or operations or finance. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, you know, one thing that worries me sometimes is people progressing HR without doing any other kind of line role or doing other, getting other experience. So I suppose just comment on that about your views about how we get the best people into the profession, how we develop their careers. Yeah, I think, firstly, we probably have got a job to sell the profession better than we do. I think, you know, there's, you know, this age-old debate about seat at the board table, which, as you know, you know, kind of irks me quite a lot that we're still talking about that. So I think we've got a job to sell the profession ourselves um, I think on graduate programmes, it's really important before people mm. maybe specialise that they could do a stint in HR. Yeah. And I think, I don't know, I've said this to you before, Kevin, so if I'm repeating myself, uh, say, but, you know, I've had two ex-CEOs do HR jobs and both of them told me they have felt it was the toughest job they ever did and that they really benefited from being a CEO as having spent time in HR. So I think that, you know, other the, the, the way that we can also educate is to ensure that 
other people from other functions do a stint in HR as well? No, I think that's absolutely right. You know, I mean, I think if you're managing any kind of service organisation, it's about people, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're the deliverers of value, creators of value, mm-hmm. and understanding some of the levers to pull and stuff, I think is, you know, a great opportunity for business leaders to learn. It is. First hand. Yeah. And I also think the other way around, I also think HR, yeah. you know, potential leaders could be great at doing other roles because I think they, they do have a set of skills. So um, tell us a bit about... Um, what next for you? So obviously you've been at Vion a while now and obviously had uh, a, fa- a very rich and rewarding career in terms of what you said about your time at TUI and what you did at EasyJet. Um, what next? Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. Okay. I think I'm open-minded about what next. I mean, obviously I'm you know seeing out my contract in uh, with Vion, uh, which comes to an end next year. Um, and so I'll either... I've got a choice to do another executive role um or become portfolio. Um, I'm obviously already a non-exec director. Um, and so that's a natural choice for me to, to do a number of different things. So, so tell me a bit about the non-exec thing. Because again, there'll, there'll be potentially lots of uh, HR directors that haven't got a formal non-exec. So mm-hmm. tell us about the good the good bits and the down, you know, what's the upside, what's the downside yeah. of being a non-exec? Yeah. I mean, I really like being a non-exec. It gives me a very different perspective on, on what the board is looking for, you know, um, and so I'm a non-exec at Ferguson PLC. I've been there five and a half years. It's my first non-exec role. And I'm also the chair of the remuneration <laughs> committee. Um, I think it's a, you know, it's a great insight, uh, opportunity to get an insight into a different industry, yeah. one that you're not naturally, uh, you know, got a close mm. affinity to. So that's really good. There's obviously the whole board responsibilities and liabilities that you have around governance and risk, yeah. etc. So there's a lot to learn from that perspective. Um, but it's also an opportunity to influence in quite a strategic way um, because you can't be operational as a non-exec. Yeah. Um, but you do have to ask the right questions. You have to be confident that the management are doing the right things for their business. Um, and I think it also helps being still a working executive because you yeah. can see both sides to that um, and remain current, which I think is yeah. quite quite critical. Um, and, you know, I think it's an opportunity to, uh, you know, to see that you can add value in quite a different way. Yeah. So I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I've, I've been very fortunate to work with a great board. Um, no, I mean, sometimes, you know, just from a personal be- uh, perspective, it's quite hard to fit the timing time, when time. you're when you're working full time with a full on yeah, exec yeah. role. Um, but for me personally, there's been no d- downside to okay. it. Okay, so that could be stuff that you look for in the future, yeah. sort of a portfolio, yeah. three or four yeah, non-exec possibly. roles. Yeah. Okay, um, and if someone was looking for a non-exec role for the first time, what do they need to be aware of? What questions should they be asking themselves and perhaps their current business and the business that they might be a non-exec with? Yeah, yeah I think um, firstly they should really understand what the role of a non-exec is because I think that people might not always be clear about that. Yeah. Um, I actually did a, a program before I became a non-exec oh, okay. um, to understand what the role was all about. And I also got some honest feedback about whether I'd be suitable or not. Um, and that was really quite good to go through that process. And who did you do the program with? Um, I did it with a glass ceiling or glass okay. ladder. Um, I think I can't okay. remember. 
um, sorry, I should know, but a, a, yeah. a person called Catherine O'Donovan, who's a great uh, yeah. mentor, and she mentored me through this program um, with Burden Co. Actually, okay. they did a program yeah. for female uh, uh, non-execs, um, and I went through that with her. Firstly, understanding the role, um, what the corporate governance code is all about, etc. Um, and then, you know, she gave me some feedback and then I just went for a number of interviews and I suppose I was quite fortunate that my first one was a pretty uh, nice big company. Mm. Um, but I, I would say prepare well for it because it's very different to an, a, a, an executive role. And when you first do it, it's uh, it's quite tempting to sort of dive into operational detail, but that's actually not what your job is about. Um, your job is about governance and risk and strategy. Yeah, someone once said to me uh, a long time ago, role of a non-exec is eyes in, hands out. I think there's something That's about That's quite that. a good summary. It is good, yeah. You've got to be watching and asking and yeah. looking, but not doing, yeah. you know. Um, so final question, really. It's a bit more about you, Jackie. So tell us a bit about your passion, what you do outside of work. Uh, are you a theatre-goer? sport, literature, you know, what is it? Obviously, I'm sure family's in there. Um, but tell us a bit about, you know, what you do outside of work. Um, I'm going to say not that much, actually. No. I work a lot. I've always worked. Um, I mean, outside to relax, I mean, I will watch really bad TV. I right, mean, okay. really bad TV. What do you mean by really bad but, TV? Like the kind of reality stuff oh, that's God. on yeah, Sky, okay. you know, it's yeah, on yeah. channels you probably haven't even heard of, you know, really okay. bad um, TV. Um, and it just kind of is mind numbing. So it kind of relaxes me. Um, I really love interior design. So oh, okay. um, I love um, kind of doing up houses and kind of remodeling them. So um, if I was going to do anything completely different, that's what I would actually So you're do. looking for a company that does that sort of, you know, <laughs> Maybe. get involved, yeah. non-exec interior yeah, I design love how, I love yeah. building houses, you know, I just like yeah. kind of that type of stuff, really. Okay. So, and, yeah. you know, family and stuff, presumably getting together with the kids and stuff? Yeah, my kids are both at uni, so, um, yeah. yeah you see know. them when you see them sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. My husband doesn't ever worked in corporate life, so... We have completely different kind of... So at home, actually, it's quite nice because I never ever talk about work. I don't mix with people who do similar jobs. So I have quite a different life outside of work, which is actually quite nice. Yeah, you need, you need, you need space, don't you? Yeah. You need space and time to, yeah. to, to, to do the jobs we have to yeah. do. So thank you for spending the time talking to us. I think there's lots of great insight, lots of advice, guidance that people can take out of our conversation. So thank you for spending the time with us. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks a lot.